I would ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 22. This is, of course, the last chapter of 1 Kings. We've been making our way through this book for quite some time. Now we, uh, we are within sight of the end. But uh, as you are turning there, uh, and you are getting ready to hear the word, and I'm getting ready to pray before doing that, I want to ask you a question, um, something to hopefully get the, the juices of intellectual cogitation flowing as we are uh, about to look at God's word. And it's this word, uh, it's this question. It's rather simple, but not if you think about it. It's this, what do you come to church to hear? What do you come to church to hear? There are many things that people will go to church for, hoping to hear. Uh, I have been in churches where people are looking to hear declarations of triumph over various adversities. They want to hear about breakthroughs. They want to hear about prophecies in their lives of of victory and uh, endless uh, wealth and health and so on. Uh, they, They honestly look forward to that every Sunday, regardless of whether it's true, regardless of whether these things come to pass. There are others who just want a little spiritual infotainment, perhaps a little moral and therapeutic deism. They want to hear maybe 12 steps on how to have a better marriage or more income or a better job or to get along with your peers and siblings and so on. Some just come to hear the things that they already believe validated. They don't, uh, they don't expect to be pushed out of their comfort zone. They don't want to be. And some come wanting to hear basically messages about the environment, messages about politics, messages about the nation, something like that. Uh, some, if statistics uh, are anything are to go by, a minority, uh, according to the statistics, some go to hear the gospel or what Paul called the whole counsel of God as it's found in the Bible. They want to hear it because it's the truth. And even when it steps on their toes, they still know it's the truth and that what they are being told, they might not want to hear it, but they know they need to hear it. They want to know how to be saved from their sins. And I hope that you are in that particular group. As we're going to see today as we read, we'll see that King Ahab, unfortunately, was not... And it did him no good, but uh, let's turn now to God. Let's ask for his help in understanding his word, and hopefully that he would make us the kind of people who want to hear the truth. God, our gracious Father, as we turn now to your word, I do pray, Lord, that you would be the light of our minds, that you would keep us fixed in our attention, that we would be thinking about these things. These words were not written merely for people long, long ago. They were written for us in this moment. The fact that we're here, the fact that we're hearing them means that you wanted us to hear them. And therefore, I pray, Lord, that they would not simply go in one ear, as the saying goes, and out the other, but that rather that they would sink down deep within us, that they would find a home in our hearts, and that we would be changed by these words, that we would be affected by them, and that, O Lord, we would be strengthened. As we see the resolve of your servant, Micaiah, I pray, Lord, that you would give us that same kind of heart that he had. And I pray now, Lord... All these things would be done. Bless your people, O Lord. Help them. Help me to divide the word aright. Let me say nothing that would go against your word and your intentions for them. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. First Kings chapter 22. Be reading through verse 28. Now three years passed without war between Syria and Israel. Then it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went down to visit the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth in Gilead is ours, but we hesitate to take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? So he said to Jehoshaphat, 
Will you go with me to fight at Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Also Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Please inquire for the, Lord, uh, for the word of the Lord today. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to fight, or shall I refrain? So they said, Go up, for the Lord will deliver it to the hand of the king. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there not still a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is still one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good according, uh, concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say such things. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, bring Micaiah, the son of Imlah, quickly. The king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, having put on their robes, sat each on his throne at a threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets prophesied before them. Now Zedekiah, the son of Chenah, uh, oh boy, Chen, uh, <laughs> Chinaana had made horns of iron for himself, and he said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall gore the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so, saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the king's hand. Then the messenger who had gone to call Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Now listen, the words of the prophets with one accord encourage the king. Please let your word be like the one of them and speak encouragement. And Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. Then he came to the king, and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. So the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains, as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Then Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one spoke in this manner, another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look. The Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. Now Zedekiah, the son of Chenaana, went near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, Which way did the spirit from the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Indeed, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide So the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him with bread of affliction and water of affliction until I come in peace. But Micaiah said, If you ever return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Take heed, all you people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
You'll remember that at the Battle of Ephek, uh, Ahab and Israel had triumphed over Syria. Uh, their, their victory had been absolutely complete. The Syrian army, which had been so, so much larger than the army of, of little Israel, had been devastated. A wall had fallen upon uh, the remnants of the army and killed 27,000 of them. Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, had been delivered into the hands of Ahab. And all of this had happened because the Lord had determined that it would. He was sovereign in these things. And he, when he is with an army, they triumph. And when he is against that army, they lose. That's simply the way it is. And so he had delivered Aram into the hands of Ahab. And Ahab was supposed to have put Ben-Hadad to death. But instead, he, he offers him this detestable mercy that the Lord never intended and which wasn't real mercy and treated him, quote, like a brother. And Ben-Hadad had supposedly made a treaty with him, offering in particular to give back, and I quote, the cities which my father took from your father. And that, of course, included cities like Ramoth-Gilead, uh, which was actually one of the cities of refuge for the tribe of Gad. But to no one's surprise, Ben-Hadad had not given back the city. Uh, in the uh, slide up here, you can see there's Ramoth-Gilead. If you were to move up beyond uh, the Sea of Ramoth Gilead is southeast of uh, the Sea of Galilee. If you continue to go straight up there, you get to Damascus. You go even further, you'll get to Assyria and so on. Uh, Ramoth Gilead was on a major trade route in Transjordan that went all the way down and around and eventually to Egypt. It was a, a source of trade and a source of wealth. And the fact that he didn't have it was a major irritation to Ahab because the city was a source of tolls taxes, revenues that were taken, not just from the people who dwelt there, but all the caravans that passed through. The king would take uh, some of the, the money and the goods that they were, they were transporting. Uh, he waited three years for the return of the city, waited in vain, during which time Ben-Hadad, of course, was able to rebuild the larger army of Syria. And then finally he decides, we've got to attack him. I, I, I must have this city back. But he did not want to go alone. So he waited for a visit from Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. Now, while Ahab was the worst of all the ten kings that the northern kingdom had, and that's saying a lot, Jehoshaphat was actually a good king. Second Chronicles 17.3 says of him, Now the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the former ways of his father David. He did not seek the balls, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the acts of of Israel. Jehoshaphat was entirely different from Ahab. He was a good king, but he had tendencies to make bad decisions. One of them was this awful decision to marry his son Jehoram off to Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And no doubt he did that to cement an alliance to end the wars between the southern and the northern kingdoms. But eventually, Athaliah who was a Baal worshiper like her mother Jezebel, eventually she would lead Jehoram and the kingdom of Judah towards apostasy. But anyway, Jehoshaphat goes down because he always went down from Jerusalem when you left it. He goes down to visit the in-laws in Samaria. And there Ahab asks him to join in his campaign to try to get back Ramoth Gilead. And here Jehoshaphat makes a second mistake. I, I don't know if you noticed. I'm, I'm hoping you did. He gets things out of order, as we sometimes do. First, he agrees to go with Ahab, and then he asks for a prophet to inquire of the Lord. 
Now, it's good that we would inquire of the Lord whether or not something that we're doing is sound. It's always good to pray to the Lord, to ask him, help me to make this decision. But what he had done is made the decision and then asked the Lord. That's never the way to do it, brothers and sisters. We should never simply be asking the Lord to rubber stamp decisions that we have already made. Brethren, pray first, search the scriptures, listen to godly counsel, and then make your decision, not the other way around. So Ahab says, well, all right. He assembles the court prophets, uh, and these were people, remember this, these were prophets who didn't need to hide from Jezebel, so they were not the sons of the prophets whom Obadiah had hidden. Rather, these were members of the adulterated golden calf denomination, that, that corrupt version of Yahweh worship, who saw their job specifically as keeping the king happy, telling him what he wanted to hear. And so they fall all over themselves to tell the king, he will be, yes, you'll be victorious. You go up to Ramoth Gilead, it'll be a smashing success. And Ahab is no doubt very happy to hear their prophecies. But Jehoshaphat takes one look at this group and he immediately recognizes that he's looking at uh, uh, the general assembly of an apostate denomination in front of them. There isn't one of these guys who knows Yahweh really. It's not one of them who's speaking for him. He understands immediately what's going on. So he asks, in essence, no, no, when I said, isn't there, I I was hoping for a real prophet. I was hoping for a real prophet of the Lord. Don't you have any of them left in this entire kingdom? And so at this point, Ahab grimaces and says, well, uh, there is one, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, by Yahweh. He specifically uses the the divine name. But I hate him. Why does he hate him? Does he hate him because he, he tells him all sorts of lies constantly? Nothing he says ever comes to pass. No, quite the opposite. He hates Micaiah because he tells him the truth on a regular basis. Because he says the things that... Ahab doesn't want to hear. Ahab lives in his sin, lives in his apostasy, and hates to hear the declarations of Micaiah condemning it, condemning him and telling him, unless you repent, unless you return, you and your household will be destroyed. This guy speaks for Yahweh. He's an evangelical. He's a Bible thumper. I hate everything he says, says Ahab, because he never tells me what I want to hear. And Jehoshaphat realizes at that point that Ahab has said, yeah, Micaiah speaks for God, and I hate every word that he says in his name. And Jehoshaphat realizes that's blasphemy. And so what does he say? He says, let not the king say such things. Don't blaspheme. So Ahab sends for him, and interestingly enough, the speed at which he is brought, and the fact that he he says, I'm going to return him now to Ammon and the the prison. It seems to indicate that Micaiah is in Samaria, definitely, and quite possibly he's already in prison. He's already at least under house arrest. The official bringing him goes and gets him and tries to get him on board. Uh, Just go along with the prophetic agenda. Look, all the other preachers are saying this. Can't you just once in your life, look, this is a national thing. It's not just you, it's not just me. We're about to go to war. Say something nice. Say it's going to be a great success. Tell the king what he wants to hear. Everybody will be happy, and maybe you won't be in such a terrible situation yourself. Micaiah, though, doesn't operate according to their agenda. The other prophets, are they say things for food. 
They say things basically so that the, their bread will be buttered, the king will take care of them, they'll remain in good with the government. That's not Micaiah's agenda. Micaiah realizes that at the end of the day, there's only one whom he has to answer to, and it's not Ahab. The one he has to answer to is a far greater king than Ahab. He has to answer to the king of kings and lord of lords. And that's what he's worried about. He wants to say, therefore, only that which is true and from God. So he answers this messenger, as the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. How rare that spirit is. Not just in in this time in the northern kingdom, but, but today, brothers and sisters. How often it is that, that people compromise the word of God. I, I have heard so many pastors, in essence, take the sword of the spirit and pound it until it becomes a butter knife that they can slather goo over people with. You know, rather than offending people with the truth. It is, you live in Fayetteville, you cannot throw a rock without hitting a house of worship. But I have to tell you, there are very few where men are standing up and they're willing to offend the people of their generation by telling them their sins, by telling them how they need the Lord Jesus Christ, by telling them that their only chance, their only hope of salvation is to be found in dying to self, running away from all of their filthy rags, their their attempts at righteousness and and seeking Christ. That is a very rare thing today, but that's the kind of man Micaiah was. Meanwhile, Zedekiah on the other side, the leader of the court prophets, is telling Ahab lies. Whenever, incidentally, I think of Zedekiah, I'm always reminded, I I don't know why, well, I sort of do know why, of Tim the Enchanter from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You remember he has these ridiculous ram's horns and a Scottish accent and, and the terrible overacting, sharp pointy teeth and all of that stuff. And that's what Zedekiah is doing. He's doing this prophetic dance before them. He's made for himself, we should think of the equivalent of a Viking helmet but with horns, not of, not of bull horns, but horns of iron. And he acts out the goring of the enemy. And some have wondered, some commentators have wondered whether he was making reference to Deuteronomy 33, 17, which said of Joseph before they went into the land, his glory is like a firstborn bull and his horns like the horns of a wild ox. Together with them, he shall push the peoples to the ends of the earth. It's possible that he was making reference to that. But regardless, he acts out this, this mockery of, of, of a prophecy, doing his own video or skit presentation before, before these kings. In any event, Micaiah shows up and he's asked, should we attack? And he gives an answer that I believe is mostly sarcastic. Well, I've been telling you, um, Ahab, because of your evil, you're, you're doomed up until now. But now, everything's great. Yeah, you go attack the Syrians. It'll, it'll work out. You'll prosper. Sure. And so Ahab looks at him with a very sour expression. He realizes this doesn't doesn't comport at all with the train of prophecies. And he knows that Micaiah has been consistent. He has been consistently telling him, no, you are doomed. And so he suddenly says, you're going to succeed. And he looks at him and says, I don't believe you're telling me the truth. So he puts him under an oath to tell him the truth. And Micaiah tells him about these two visions. The first is, I saw Israel without a shepherd. What does that mean? You're going to die, Ahab. This will be your last battle. And then the people going back to their villages. We lose, you're dead, 
the army goes back to their villages. Ramoth Gilead is a disaster. And it's at this point that Micaiah then also tells him about his second vision, which is rather like what we read about in Job 1 and 2, where the, the hosts of heaven gather before the Lord. Uh, he tells him why all of his paid flunkies are telling him to attack. He tells him that he had this vision of the throne room of God, and their God had called all the heavenly hosts together. We shouldn't be thinking that in this case, the devil and evil spirits were there, but a spirit, a ruah in Hebrew comes because the Lord says, who will go and tell Ahab to attack? Because it is my desire, God is sovereign in all things. It's my desire that he would be destroyed. And so the spirit says, I'll go, I'll put a lying spirit within them in the mouth of all of his prophets so that Ahab will believe them and go to war. And so he says, go. Now, this upsets liberal commentators to no end. How could the Lord possibly send a spirit to deceive this king? Well, I have to tell you, our Lord is sovereign. He decrees everything. It is not the case that disasters happen and the Lord has no hand in them. The Lord ordains everything that happens. Good providences, bad providences, they're all his providences. And this prediction of Ahab's end has already been made by Elijah. And even the use of this, these false prophets in, in bringing about his plan, that too is a reminder that God controls everything. He controls every word that is spoken, and of course he controls the final judgment on unbelief that's going to happen. Well, Zedekiah hears about this. He hears, he's been uh, essentially told, you guys are a bunch of liars. You wouldn't know the Lord if he bit you. You have never spoken the truth is what the implication is. And now you're lying because an evil spirit has been put into you. And so he asks him this mocking question after he goes up and he strikes him. And he says, which way did the, the spirit go from me to you? And he says, oh, <laughs> Zedekiah, you'll know. You will know when you go and hide in a closet. Now, why would Zedekiah be hiding in a closet? Zedekiah will either be hiding in a closet because he's hiding from the Syrians or because he's hiding from the relatives of all the men who were slain because of his terrible advice. That's a possibility as well. Sometimes the comeuppance of false prophets is those who are stung by their false prophecies. So Ahab does, at this point, after Micaiah makes his speech, what every, every king or political leader does who hates the word of God, what does he do? He persecutes the messenger. So the king of Israel said, take Micaiah, and this is the critical word, I think, uh, and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, thus says the king, put this fellow in prison and feed him with bread of affliction and water of affliction until I come in peace. Bread and water, basically, with, with barely enough to keep him alive is what he says. But Micaiah turns and he, he marks this to all the people. He says, mark this. If you return in peace, I haven't spoken the word of the Lord. I'm a false prophet. I will deserve to die because Micaiah knew the standard for prophets was 100%. Jehoshaphat knew that as well. Deuteronomy 18.20 reads, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. If his words don't come true, 
then he's not the Lord's prophet. Very simple. One last time then, he warns Ahab in the strongest possible terms, but Ahab's heart is like flint. It is absolutely set against the Lord and his word. He tells him that he has spoken the truth, and he says, you can test this. You can test this by what's about to happen. You can tell after the fact that I've spoken the truth because everything that I've just said is going to come to pass. But Ahab doesn't care. He is so against the Lord. He's willing to go against the words of this prophet, despite the fact that everything that he has said so far has come to pass. But the amazing thing, the thing that amazes me, is that Jehoshaphat doesn't take heed. Jehoshaphat was a man of God. Jehoshaphat was a good king. And yet, after being warned, this battle will result in the scattering of the army and the death of Ahab, he still goes up with him. It's a foolish, foolish thing to do, but he does it anyway. It was the will of the Lord that this man would be struck down, but that Ahab didn't stop and say, well, I'm I'm not going with you. That that is a shame. In any event, a few applications for you. Today, the world, unfortunately, is still filled with men like Zedekiah, men who stand up and who preach false prophecies in the ears of, of people because their ears are itching. They tell them the things that they want to hear. I'll give you, I'll give you an example of that. This is, this is actually from a Joel Osteen uh, sermon. I will, I will hold back on doing my patented Joel Osteen accent. And I know, I'm sorry. The medical, uh, I'm doing it. The me- <laughs> I'm so sorry. This is second nature now to me. The medical report may not be good. You had a setback in your finances. The odds are against you. That doesn't stop our God. You haven't missed your chance. The window hasn't closed. An unscheduled blessing is coming. An out-of-season promotion is already en route. Healings, breakthroughs, the right people, they're already on your calendar. How does he know that? For everybody sitting in this 16,000-member auditorium, the person who next week is going to be diagnosed with terminal cancer, the person who actually there's a pink slip waiting for him on Monday, The millions who are listening to this man saying, unending prosperity. Guys like Kenneth Copeland who will actually say, money, come to me. You know, as though that is the gospel. That's nothing but Zedekiah Mark II. It's all about the things of the belly, the things of this present life. Lies, 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 as long as they make people happy. As long as they make natural men think that they're going to prosper when, in fact, they're about to be destroyed. Do we need that? No, you need that like doctors who, when you go to them with some illness that will be terminal unless it's diagnosed and treated, no matter how painful it is, doctors who say, you're in great shape, and they give you a lollipop and send you on your way. That is not helpful at all. No, what we need is men who are willing to tell the truth, no matter how unpopular it is with the person receiving it or with the society in which they're operating. Men who are willing to convey the word of God because they know that that is the only thing that helps people. One of those men of God, and I'd recommend his works to you, uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance pastor, A.W. Tozer, wrote the following about one uh, one of those incidents. In his life. I've had similar incidents, but I wanted to give you one from his life. 
He writes, after my arrival in Toronto, a cultured, attractive young woman made an appointment to see me in my office. When she came, we talked for a few moments to get acquainted, and then she came to the point. She said she was troubled about her homosexual relations with her roommate. She told me she had already talked with other professionals about this. I had the distinct impression she hoped I would assure her that what she was doing was permissible in our day. Instead, I faced her squarely. Young woman, I said. You are guilty of sodomy, and God is not going to give you any approval or comfort until you turn from your known sin and seek his forgiveness and cleansing. I guess I needed to hear that, she admitted. As a Christian minister and counselor, he goes on, there was no way that I could console and comfort that girl and ease and soften the pain of guilt she was experiencing within her being. She would have to endure it until the moment of decision when she would confess her sin and plunge by faith into that cleansing fountain filled with blood from Emmanuel's veins. That's the calling of every true prophet of God, every true messenger of God, whether it's in the Old Testament when they were forth telling what would come to pass, or today when they were for, not foretelling, but forth telling, sorry, the word of God to God's people. It doesn't matter. They needed to hear the word of God. They needed to hear the truth. They needed to hear that unless they repented and believed, unless they trusted in the promises of God, unless they put their hope in his Messiah, his Redeemer, the Anointed One, who would die for their sins, they had no hope. We desperately, this day, we need a generation, not of men declaring things and speaking eternal prosperity and all of that garbage. What we need are a generation of Micaiahs, men who are willing even to go to jail for telling the truth to God's people because it's what they need. And we are in the next generation. We are looking at a time when increasingly, if you speak the truth, if you speak what this word says about the world and about sin, you are going to go to jail or worse. But brothers and sisters, that shouldn't frighten us. We should never fear men. Who should we fear? There's only one we should fear. Who is that? God. Fear God. Brothers and sisters, the worst that men can do to you is to kill you. And when they do that, if you are a man or a woman or a child of God, what have they done? They've just delivered you into the hands of your Savior. You have passed through the veil and have nothing more to fear, not just for time, but forever. So why do we fear men so badly? Do we think we're going to live here on earth forever? Of course not. There is a day appointed for all of us where we will stand before our Savior. Don't we want to stand before him and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant? I hope that's your desire. Remember, always remember this, young or old, remember that someone who speeds you on his way, on your way rather, to destruction with lies is not your friend. And they are not a representative of Jesus, the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Comforting lies may be the, the sermon du jour in our present age, but that doesn't make them good. That doesn't make them helpful. Instead, let's hear the truth. Even if it wounds, the Lord Jesus Christ will heal he is the one who will bind up our wounds. Let's go before him. God, our gracious Father, I thank you, Lord, that you have raised up in every age a, a faithful remnant of pastors and prophets and apostles who are willing, O oh Lord, to tell the truth because it is your truth, 
to tell people what they need to hear, where they need to go to direct them in the right direction. Lord, uh, belonging to a social club where we gather uh, to hear comforting lies will in the end do us no good. And so I pray, Lord, that that would never be the kind of church that we, we have, never be the kind of church that we seek. Rather, instead, I pray, Lord, that we would seek after the truth and that you would use that truth to bind up our wounds, to show us where we need to go, to help us, O oh Lord, on our way as we do go through life. In your name.